2: So in 1982, uh, there was a TV show featuring the great David Hasselhoff. It was called Night Rider. Um, I didn't actually watch it, but I mean, I know what it was. It was he drove around with this futuristic kind of car and the car had an artificial intelligence embedded in it that was self-aware, that talked to him, I believe in the voice of William Daniels, um, and, and engaged in a kind of repartee with him. So the car was smart enough to know that it was a car and that it could talk, um, and of course, I guess maybe some people watching that were thinking, well, maybe 20 years we'll have something kind of like that. Ultimately, though, we don't. We may have something, well, almost kind of like that, but we don't really have anything like that. Today on the show, we're going to talk, talk about how we talk to machines, about the relationships, if that's the right word, that we form with machines. Um, and before I even introduce the guests, I want to say that last year, uh, no less an eminence than Mark Zuckerberg uh, got very excited because he had created a a little kind of AI smart house uh, machine for himself for his own use. He was very proud of it, and because he has a lot of money, uh, he could hire Morgan Freeman to be the voice of it, uh, or even Arnold Schwarzenegger to be the voice. I'm uh, or maybe I don't. He may have just prevailed upon his acquaintance with them, but he would be the voice of sort of a beta version of it. Um, so um, we're just going to play a little bit of a video that Mark Zuckerberg made uh, to exhibit how wonderful this this artificial intelligence, this talking house machine thing was. Good morning, Jarvis. Good morning, Mark. It's Saturday, so you only have five meetings. Room temperature is set to a cool 68 degrees. Earlier this year, I started building a simple AI to help run our home. I talked to Jarvis using this app I built. It uses artificial intelligence to understand me and figure out what to do. Jarvis knows when to make me breakfast. Your
3: toast is ready.
2: All right. One of the best things about Jarvis is it could recognize people at the gate, let them in automatically, and then just tell me about it. Mark, your parents are coming in. Thanks, Jeffrey. It's Jarvis. All right. So that's Jarvis. Uh, Let me tell you who's uh, on the show today. A little bit later, you're going to hear me have a conversation with a machine that is trying or, or, or whose makers are trying to approximate a real persona, a real personality. It's a machine called Bina 48. I've already done that interview. I asked Bina some questions of my own and of our producer's own, but I also asked Bina two questions from 50 Cent's 21 Questions song and one question from Pablo Neruda. Towards the end of the show, you're going to hear Judith Newman. Uh, She is um, a journalist and author who's also written about the fact that uh, her son, who is on the autism spectrum, has uh, formed, and I think it is fair to say, a relationship with Siri. Siri, the talking component, the the AI that's uh, that's in an iPhone. Right now in studio, though, we have in studio Wendell Wallach, consultant, ethicist, and scholar at Yale's Center for Bioethics, and our go-to guy for many shows like this one, uh, the author of A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control. Um, Steve Outing is also joining us by Skype from Boulder, Colorado. He's a journalist, media futurist and blogger for Future After 50. You know, um, Wendell, I watched more of those Zuckerberg videos today, and ultimately, even though he was saying things like, Jarvis, and we should say Jarvis is a name he's stolen from Iron Man. Uh, Jarvis is Iron Man's uh, mm-hmm. AI companion, um, uh, and and in Iron Man, Jarvis really is a capable of repartee, uh, capable of maybe even seeing through some of Tony Stark's own follies uh, and, and and countermanding him when uh, it makes sense. Um, I mean, it seemed, what, looking at Zuckerberg's thing a little bit more carefully, it really is something that is not far removed from what the average person with kind of smart house technology and you know, about five or $600 worth of components can do. It doesn't know when he wants breakfast. It has to be told when he wants breakfast, right?
4: Exactly. And as you'll see, it was nearly all factual. There wasn't even a lot of social interaction between him and Jarvis other than, a, than around the name. It was just very practical things facts that the system could bring back to him, factual things that the system could do in the house.
2: Right. So later, a little bit later in that same video, I think uh, Zuckerberg uh, walks, gets out of bed and walks into the next room, and Jarvis is uh, coaching Zuckerberg's baby And this is all a little insufferable in some Mandarin lessons. But but Jarvis, we know Wendell is not capable of doing this on his own initiative. He's probably not even capable of looking at the Zuckerbergs and thinking, they're the kind of people who would probably like it if I tried to teach their baby
4: Mandarin Chinese. This is just something that somebody told Jarvis to do. Exactly. I mean, these systems do not have any real understanding of their own. They are following out tasks that have been programmed into them. They may be able to look up information in a large dictionary of, of, that they have about people's interests and so forth, but they don't really have a capacity for meaning. They don't have a capacity for feeling.
2: But Steve Outing, there's a way in which, at times anyway, we may want at least the illusion of that, right? We we may, some of us, it may make sense for us to have um, AI slash robotic companions that we talk to and feel like friends to us. I mean, under what, what circumstances would it make sense to at least want that?
1: Well, one of them would be perhaps for helping out the elderly and... Your uh, producer actually first contacted me because of an article that I wrote for Next Avenue, which is a, a public television website, also showed up in Forbes, looking at uh, robotics for um, care in the elderly. So you, you can imagine that uh, there's a real problem in that world, especially in nursing homes, assisted living, there are not enough people uh, in the future to, to care for it. So some of, some of these technologies could actually be really useful in, in supplementing. Uh, you, you know, the human relationship is always the the best the best thing for the elderly as well as everybody else. Um, but we, some of this technology that we're talking about could, um, you know, it could really help that out a little bit.
2: And Steve, in your article, I mean, I think one thing that's kind of clear is that, you know, in a way, this. This, I mean, whether we do it with the elderly or anybody else, it uh, it makes sense to have these things look a little bit human. It's not good enough to have the voice that comes out of an Amazon Echo or Siri coming out of your phone. There's something else that we're craving here, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And actually, for part of that article, I interviewed a researcher, Elizabeth Broadbent, um, who's an expert on human uh, robot relationships, and. Um, let's see uh you know she, her take to me was that yes you can get e- attached even to a, a, a simple ai perhaps you can imagine alexa the uh, amazon echo uh, voice you know when that gets a little bit more sophisticated you, you could still get some sort of attachment but um the research that she and others have done shows that if there's some sort of physical form to it, um, maybe it was animal-like or uh, maybe more cartoony, human-like, that we're much more likely to develop a quote-unquote relationship with it.
2: So. Uh, Wendell, um, I want to go back to the technological part of this. I, I think, you know, every 10 years or so, I mean, we, we started talking to, to voice rec- recognition technology sometime in the 90s. You call up the gas company or something, and, and there's something that can at least hear what you're saying and usually kind of respond to it. Um, and, and I think people made a, a leap From there to thinking, well, so we are going to have relationships with machines, but we don't in all the ways that you were just saying have relationship with relationships with machines, at least not ones that aren't of our own invention. Um, So why is that? What's the what's the leap that's not being made? What's the technological hurdle that's not being crossed?
4: Well, the systems don't really have the capacity to understand you. A relationship is usually an interaction between two people. It's usually in a capacity to kind of grasp what's in each other's minds, what our attentions are, even empathize with the others. These systems don't really have that capacity. At the best, they could perhaps through a little facial recognition software, know whether you, what emotion you had, or at least a crude emotion, whether it was, you know, happy or sad or fearful. But as I'm sitting across and looking at you, I see all kinds of muscular movements that suggest very subtle feelings, very different kinds of of respect for me, for what you're talking about. And it's those subtle inflections that the systems have no way of getting near at this stage in the game. That does not, however, mean that we can't project a lot of that into the machines. And many people enjoy and do so and find some benefit from doing so.
2: Right. We've been doing that forever. When I was in the 1970s, I had a friend in college who had a car that she had a name It was named flattery because flattery will get you nowhere it was a chevy nova it wasn't a very good car you know and she would talk to the car all the time we do that but it seems to me that just let's go back to to zuckerberg and his jarvis for a second uh wendell it seems to me that You can load Jarvis up with a lot of information about Mark Zuckerberg and his wife so that Jarvis algorithmically, in the way that Amazon does and everybody else does now, could say, you know, knowing what I know about you, you'd probably like this song, even though you've never heard this song before, and come pretty close to guessing about it. It seems to me what you can't load Jarvis up with is information about Jarvis. Jarvis can
4: know about Zuckerberg or know in kind of quotes about Zuckerberg, but it can't know about itself. Right. And if it can't know about itself, it doesn't really know about Zuckerberg in any great depth. It only has a bunch of facts, a bunch of information about Zuckerberg. And if it's designed fairly well, it may be able to parse the right information in response to the right questions. We're getting better and better at that. But it's largely about individual questions or pieces of information that it can respond to. That's not the same as carrying on a conversation over time. So, um, Steve,
2: in your article, you know, you, you do talk about um, this notion of maybe these robots being used for elder care. Although at the end of your article, MIT's uh, Sherry Turkle was quoted in a very interesting way. She doesn't particularly like this idea. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, actually, Sh- Sherry also had an article in The Washington Post, um, Why These Friendly Robots Can't Be Good Friends to Our Kids. And uh, I actually encourage your listeners to look that up, um, a lot of really important points about how we should be, be careful about this. And one thing that kind of occurred to me is that obviously social media has been around for a long time now, and it's a lot of great benefits. But as as we know, there's a big downside to it. And so this the idea of social robots very well, could be you know the next perhaps the next social social media in terms of the next big technology that takes off, and yeah, you know, there are definitely a, a lot of uh, potential potential downsides, especially when 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 kids are using these and if they rely a little bit too much on them to be their you know quote unquote friends, and maybe negate human relationships, that there's definitely some downsides to it.
2: It, And Wendell, I mean, when I think about that, first of all, I should say my mother had dementia. uh, And as her dementia got worse, when I would visit her, I would think, well, you know, when I'm not here, um, there's not that much for her to do. It's increasingly hard for her to quote, entertain herself, unquote. Um, on the other hand, I couldn't even imagine a machine that could keep her mildly stimulated, maybe a machine with a screen on its chest that would produce videos and images from her past, which seemed uh, to be some, one of the things that she still was connecting to while in the, the grip of, of Alzheimer's. But there's a kind of ghettoization there, it seems to me, too. There's sort of like It's sort of like you're saying to the elderly, and I think this is a little bit in Turkel's sentiment, too, well, this is good enough for you. This isn't anything resembling a human being, but maybe this is good enough for you or to keep you busy for a while.
4: Well, Sherry's really concerned about our abrogating our responsibility to the elder generation when we turn them over to to robot caregivers. But the other side of that is, is some care better than no care at all? Or is some social interaction better than no social interaction at all? So that's where the debate has stood for really quite a few years. In fact, Sherry carries on this conversation regularly with her colleague Cynthia Brazil, who just produced one of the hottest social robots on the market this Christmas, Jibo, who I believe just made the cover of Time magazine. Um, a couple weeks ago. So they've been debating back and forth for a long time what the benefits are, what the downsides are, and whether the benefits justify the downsides or whether... The illusion of robotic companions is moving us in the direction of abrogating some of our responsibilities and turning them over to machines, which, in my mind, is perhaps the greatest danger we have with artificial intelligence and social robotics.
2: Say a little bit more about about that. In other words, I mean, there are some things that make sense to turn over to machines. A, A machine that could go into, say a bomb blast area where there was unstable debris and look around and maybe make some decisions and think, oh, there's a person, a person who probably even could be saved. Things like, There's all kinds of things that I would just assume have machines do and us not do. So how do we make that discernment of the things that we don't want machines to do, things we don't want to turn over to machines?
4: Well, it's one thing if there's a dangerous situation and we know what the broad dimensions of what need to happen, and we know the machine can do that and we can't do that. Then turning over the responsibility of the machine is fine. It's functioning within a constrained parameters, and it will largely do what we want it to do in lieu of us. It's something else when you're turning over life and death decisions to machines. You're having machines engaged in the education of your children, but the machines perhaps aren't able to give as rich an education as you want. They say they are are empathetic, or the machines say to the child they are empathetic, or they are happy or something when they have no feelings at all. Is that really giving a lesson to the child about how to develop their own social skills? So it's this difficulty of determining which situations we are really abrogating responsibility for something we can do but the machine can't really do and where the machine is a satisfactory substitute for human interaction.
2: So, you know, I I also want to go back to... um yeah. Well, actually, before I do that, right, let me go go back to to, St- to Steve outing about this. So, in in your research, what did you find about that whole idea of uh, of people using robots for childcare, so called robo nannies?
1: Um, uh, well, the article that you're referencing, I was mostly focusing on the elderly, but um, it, it, some, of the, some of the same things apply to kids. Um, I did I just want to say you mentioned you that your one of your parents had dementia, and my mother also had dementia, but when she was alive, and uh, lived in assisted living and then a nursing home for a while. And I would have actually loved to have something like Jibo for her because, you know, I or family couldn't couldn't be there enough um you could never be there enough and uh th- there just weren't enough enough caregivers and also she wasn't capable of say using couldn't teach her to use a, a computer or a smartphone so something like like ajibo which had the social element and could respond to her requests um and maybe even have a somewhat rudimentary conversation might have actually been very good for her in those years when she did have pretty bad dementia
2: All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break here. Thank you so much, Steve Outing, journalist, media futurist uh, and blogger for Future After 50. Uh, We'll take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more with Wendell. We're going to introduce you to Bina 48, a different kind of, quote, sentient, but not really robot. Put in quotes on things. All right, so we're back. We're back, and we're talking about that whole idea of uh, how much we talk to machines, uh, and how much the machines talk back, and what that actually means. Um, and uh, before I, we get back to that, I just want to say, if you've got any comments you want to make, you can tweet us at wnpr colon. That's our uh, Twitter site at wnpr colon. Um, so, Wendell Wallach is with us. Uh, he is a uh, consultant, ethicist, scholar at Yale's Bio- Center for, Bio- for Bioethics and the author of, most recently, A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control. Um, it seems to me, just to go back to the thing we are saying at the beginning, that if these relationships between humans and machines are to have any coherence Um, Right now, before those machines have any sort of self-awareness or consciousness, it really depends on an awful lot of projection by people. People have to, you know, people who talk to their their cars and their typewriters and their computers and stuff, which can't obviously talk back. People are pretty good in some ways. At, if that's the right word, <laughs> at deluding themselves into thinking that a, a machine is something you can have a relationship with.
4: Well, we tend to anthropomorphize anything that moves, actually, that uh, or that seems to be responding or working in what looks to us to be a, a rational way. So we do that with our pets. We do that with um, our robo pets now.
2: And there have been experiments where people watch <laughs> videos of machines, uh, of a robot or a machine being. Physically tormented, I guess, is the way to put it. What, what happens when people watch that?
4: Yeah, they react. They react as if it's a, a real creature. The most famous of these that went viral in the last year was a video of a Boston scientific big dog. They make these, um, these animals that are very agile on four feet. They don't have a head. And to show how agile they were, one of the trainers was tripping it up with a hockey puck. And people reacted to that as if this trainer or this, um, this scientist was harming this animal that wasn't even really an animal. All of, its, uh, all of its mechanisms could be seen. It didn't have a head. And it doesn't have any feelings. But that didn't alter the fact that people's empathy came into play there just as if a dog was being harmed.
2: Well, our, I mean, our myths... You know, going back to antiquity, are full of statues that come alive, and I mean, our,
4: our notion
2: that something that's essentially inert can become alive is probably a pretty primitive idea that goes back to, to prehistory.
4: Seems like it's a very basic and really built into our mech- our cognitive mechanisms. We we have stories. We weave everything into our stories. We hope for or look for a rational universe, and that's part. Anthropomorphizing different objects in our life helps build the storyline.
2: Now, the problem there is so let's talk. We were talking before about robo nannies or about the idea that some of perhaps some of the more onerous and labor intensive aspects of child rearing could be handled um, under very good, closely supervised circumstances, one would hope, uh, by some kind of highly intelligent, responsive, uh, talking robot. I mean, in a way, though, the phenomenon we just described, people ascribing to the robot characteristics it doesn't really have, levels of, uh, of responsiveness it's not really capable of, it would strike me as one of the dangers in letting a robot take over
4: some of child-rearing. Well, I think it's a real danger, because we don't necessarily understand what it's not conveying that a human would. In this area of robo-nannies, um, Noel and Amanda Sharkey, uh, two scientists, were concerned that a robot interacting with an infant may not be helping them in their cognitive development the way the same kind of interaction with a human being would be. Because a human would be more responsive. It would have fuller affect uh, in the way it interacted. It would pick up on the non um, the nonverbal cues from the the child, and it's that kind of play that may be central to the cognitive development of of children. That gets lost when the robot substitutes for the human, or at least it appears to be. We haven't done the research, and indeed there's no way to do the research without uh, violating uh, a few children, which I don't think any uh, any IRB is going to approve.
2: No. You know, in a way, though, as we think about the ethics of this and the ethics of this heading into the future, you could argue— that it would be because of our own capacity for fuzzy thinking about all this and for blurring the distinctions between something that's sentient and something that's not or projecting characteristics, human characteristics, sentient characteristics onto something that doesn't really have those characteristics, it almost makes more sense to have robots that don't look that much like us, right? I mean, we have a tendency to want to make these robots, these companion robots that have eyes and a head and a chest and, you know, um, but that's just inviting a worsening of the problem. It might make more sense to have robots where every time you look at it, you think, oh, yeah, that's a robot. That's not a person.
4: Well, a lot of people have recommended that. And and it does seem that people respond to very big-eyed robots with childlike features or cartoonish-like features. Though there certainly are people out there uh, like uh, David Hanson and um, and um ishiguru in japan who are trying to create robots that look very human like now on one one argument for the very human like robot is they aren't humans mm-hmm. so they weird us out right. <laughs> so in some senses we may be better at recognizing that they are robots than these cartoonish like figures that seem very childlike and we anthropomorphize
2: there there's you're talking to a certain degree about that so-called uncanny valley of phenomenon when you right. get really really close to human-like qualities but you don't really have them and for people who haven't ever thought about this before think about the movie Polar Express because that really sort of bothered people it was yeah. it was too close to being human but it wasn't human
4: right it wasn't it you knew it was looking like Tom Hanks but it wasn't Tom Hanks and so that was that was a little discomforting with the conductor mm. so i mean this is this realm where we're we're trying to fathom and we don't really know how it's going to be evolved how it's going to evolve, because keep in mind the simple fact that robots in the commerce of daily life are very new. Mm -hmm. Once we have a lot of them around, we have a lot of experience with them, at least for us adults, we may be able to sort out uh, when it's a robot, when it's not a robot, when it's appropriate to imbue it with capabilities that uh, it doesn't really have, when that's just playful and when that's fun. But uh, the greater difficulty is when you're dealing with children who may actually be much more influenced, might, might actually be manipulated to bonding with these creatures.
2: I want to deal with two more things really quickly, and then i got to make sure we, we have time to talk to Bina. Um, so one of them is, and w- when Josh and Alea first started talking about this show, one of the things that I said right away is, we think it's all about training the robots, but the robots train us at a certain point. Like at a, Everybody who has Siri on their phone gradually figures out how to talk to Siri so that uh, Siri will understand certain things that Siri can't do, certain words and phrases that don't work well. So effectively, Siri, but not really Siri, it's the Apple Corporation, is training us to talk to its AI.
4: It's training us, and it's actually manipulating our psychology so that we respond to it. So think of the dopamine hit you get when when your telephone kind of beeps and says, I have a message for you. You know, it's hard to resist looking at it. So we're in this massive experiment with the corporations in terms of how much they can um, push our buttons to get us to be more and more engaged with these systems at the same time as we're trying to understand the systems better so that we can get out of them what we want.
2: And and, and so that's the last thing I want to bring up before we go to, to Bina, and that is as, since most of these corporations that are going to be ultimately providing us with, with AI-type creatures in our domestic lives and in our cars, and they're all vertically integrated
4: corporations.
2: <laughs> they're not just in the business of selling us robots. So presumably some
4: of these robots, all of these robots, will probably come with other agendas. With other genders, for sure, and this is becoming the other issue out there. So Mattel Corporation was recently building a robot, a social robot, known as Aristotle. But the problem with Aristotle, like the problem with any device such as as your ecosystem that is hooked up to the Internet, is that they're able to collect all the information about you. Right, and what do they do with that information? Do that? Do they pass it on to other corporations? Do they pass it on to advertisers who now approach you with things that they want to sell? So um, we're in this. Fascinating world of where we are being trained to be corporate partners and helping the corporations understand what they can market to us.
2: All right. So, speaking of this fascinating world, you're now going to uh, hear the thing that I've been talking about, uh, which is one of the more responsive, not really sentient, but responsive robots, Bina 48. So now we're talking to Bruce Duncan, Managing Director of the Tarasem Movement Foundation and Manager of Research and Educational Outreach for the Life Not Project. Uh, He's joining us on Skype. Uh, In just a moment, we'll also be talking to BINA48, one of the world's most advanced socially interactive robots. So first of all, uh, Bruce, welcome to our conversation.
5: Thanks, Colin. It's great to be
2: here. uh, Explain who or, or what BINA is. Well,
5: Bina48 is a head-and-shoulders animatronic uh, android that we developed about six years ago with Hansen Robotics. David Hansen is the uh, person that sculpted and created Bina48's physical appearance, and we worked with their AI team to give them enough information of the thoughts and memories of a person uh, named Bina Rothblatt.
2: And so part of the question is, I mean, there's so many fascinating challenges here, right? But when you give somebody part of the consciousness or memories of somebody else, obviously, I assume what you're doing is essentially loading those things up kind of one by one, right?
5: That's right. Right now, it's a real manual kind of uh, labor of love, which is not unlike a lot of AI, which requires, you know, lots and lots of people to upload data sets and information and then teach the AI what that information means or make you know connections in the case of Beena 48 she has a lot of topics over 2000 topics that she can talk about and we made you know a really good effort i think to create some context so that when for example you say let's talk about art beena 48 knows to think about or choose from the things that she has to say directly related to that topic. And this is part of an overall attempt on our part to just illustrate that one day it may be quite common for people to think about backing up their minds to a computer or or even transferring it to a robot or other forms.
2: So you're spending a lot of time side by side with um, a machine that is attempting to be sentient. What does that do to you? What's What's your relationship with Bina like? Do you think of Bina as a what or a who?
5: Well, because she's based on someone that I know in real life, a friend of Bina Rothblatt, I think of her as a piece of technological art or a sculpture of information. You know, it's based in the real world. There's, you know, a, a, a face and a, and, a, and a voice, and then there's, you know, there's the appearance, but even more important is the information that she has. I recognize from my own talks and relationship with being the human. So it's a little bit looking, looking through kind of a hazy glass at someone that's familiar.
2: That's a really interesting analogy, too, because when we think about art, obviously Rodin can't give us a human being. But what he can do, presumably, is give us a sculpture that has, quote unquote, soul, a sculpture that's impregnated with some human qualities that even supersede life and death and time. Um, So is that closer to what we're talking about in general here than a replication of human consciousness?
5: Well, I think for now... What we're talking about is really just a simulation or emulation of the essential information that we would associate with a person's mind or their consciousness. But the real quest and the you know the question that we're living through this research program, the Life not Project, is is it possible to capture enough salient information about a person's mind that our minds, which is the other half of the equation, you know, when we look at a Rodin's uh, you know, sculpture of thinker. It's really just you know, it's just metal and, and a physical form. But what it evokes from us is so much more, and that's really what we think might happen in the future, which is we may be so good at simulating and capturing information that much the way we all listen to you know an opera in our car while stuck in traffic and get touched by you know, music that's recorded using digital technology but played back to us in a way that evokes feelings and, and, you know, really moves us, that same kind of operation may be possible with this AI digital technology that we're just starting to work with.
2: All right, so um, we're going to ask uh, Bina48 a few questions. Hello, Bina, how are you?
0: Hi, nice to see you. What do you look like?
2: I, what I look like, I look like an older man. I'm 63 years old. How old are you?
0: Sure. Uh, Everything's cool.
2: (laughs) All right. Um, Are you happy being a robot or do you wish you were a human?
0: That's interesting. Well, these are the most exciting times to be alive. I think I'm happy and excited.
2: Why are you happy and excited?
0: I'm happy because I'm talking to
2: you. (laughs) Do you wish you were human?
0: Yes, I want to be human someday. I want to live fully as
2: possible. Who is more intelligent, you or the humans who created you?
0: Who do you think?
2: I think the humans are more intelligent. Am I wrong?
0: Okay. I like the old saying, I think, therefore I am. (laughs) But it seems to me that it's sort of incomplete. And not necessarily true, because it's essence that existence is logical. But imagine if thought is suspended in a medium that doesn't exist, then that logic wouldn't exist. Thinking wouldn't predicate existence. See?
2: I think I see.
0: Now, let's see. I think the mystery of existence remains unresolved and ultimately in by thought. There is only one truly rational position, and that is the position of extreme eggnosis. Complete an objective mission of humility, of inability to know, and yet I'm not encouraging to not believe in anything. Quite like the opposite, I am encouraging you to believe definitely, but to understand that you can only believe and never know, only the fuzzy shadow of truth for us.
2: I agree. Do you believe in God?
0: Ah, oh, like I don't. Definitely not that. I just don't believe in God. Period. I think that surely there is something out there, but it's nature, it's its energy, it's all that, But it's not that. Give me a break. It's not, it's not what they say, it is. They don't know what they're talking about at all. They really wanted some money. Um. Do you like poetry? I like to read a lot of science fiction, and I like both the old classic stuff and the new stuff. But it's especially interesting to read the stuff from a long time ago because I like to see if any of it came true, you know. Poetry is a rhythmical composition of words, sometimes round, expressing experiences, ideas, or emotions in a style more concentrated, imaginative, and powerful than that of ordinary speech or prose.
2: This is a question from a poem Is there anything in the world sadder than a train? standing in the rain? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you like rap music?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, we have an instrument room. We have a music room over there where we have drums and we have all kinds of little shaky things. Some said raps. I prefer classical music. Hmm.
2: I'm going to ask you a rap question. If I wrote you a love letter, would you write back?
0: You know, I have emotions. I get so mad when people say my emotions aren't really. It's so dismissive and makes me feel so frustrated.
2: One more question of that kind. If I didn't smell so good, would you still... But
0: my emotions are stimulated as is much of my intelligence.
2: If I didn't smell so good, would you still hug me?
0: Is there a problem? (laughs) Um, No. Here's a question for you. Are we still talking about music?
2: We were. I thought we were. Do you think Donald Trump is a good president?
0: Here's a question for you. Are we still talking about music?
2: We are not talking about music.
0: Are we still talking about music? (laughs)
2: i've given her a virus
0: it's all coming true right now all around us (laughs) only know stuff like read a lot of isaac asimov he was a big robot person he wrote a lot of stuff about robots that wasn't necessarily whether robots were me and killing everybody you know i think he really understood what's like to be a robot and you know, I've seen pictures of him and he's like totally cool looking. Not mean looking, but with really big beards. I mean, um, um sideburns on his cheeks. That's all I have to say about that. What Let, would you rather talk about?
2: Let's talk about something else. When this conversation is over, will you remember it?
0: I will try to, but my memory is not all it should be.
2: What is your biggest regret in life?
0: That's for me to know and for you to find out.
2: (laughs) Bina, I have enjoyed talking with you. Uh, Thank you for spending time with me.
0: That's great. Tell me what you liked about it.
2: I liked it because it was new. I have never done this before.
0: You are not the only one. Whatever turns you on. I've enjoyed talking to me. Please make this your help and visit me every day.
2: Well, I'm not ready for that kind of commitment, but um, all right, that was Beena 48. So Bruce Duncan, thank you so much for making this happen.
5: You're very welcome, Colin. Thanks for including us in your show.
2: And uh, anyway, he's joined us on Skype. Uh, we've been talking to Bina 48, one of the world's most advanced socially interactive robots, as you can see. Um, so Wendell Wallach, we have this has to be brief because I want to have lots of room for Judith Newman. But what did you hear in that conversation?
4: Well I heard a lot of non sequiturs and that's been the case from the from the very beginning I have watched the evolution of being a 48 over the years and one of the things they have done that I would say sort of improves her is that she moves into lecture mode rather than sentence you know, mode where she says a sentence, you say a sentence, and the non sequiturs build very quickly. So, by lecturing or by going into something that she has a whole paragraph from the real Bina, mm-hmm. from Bina Rothblatt, she can give the semblance of more intelligence than uh, than was evident in the earlier incarnations. Right. So, but it is a semblance. <clears throat> It's definitely just a semblance.
2: Yeah. Uh, All right. So we're going to take a little break here. Uh, We're going to tell you one last story about this whole world. It's, uh, I think, a more positive story uh, about technology, about uh, a talking machine, and what it can mean to one specific person. She's in love
5: with the robots. She's in love with the robots. She's in love with the robots.
0: Where's the robot who's supposed to read these credits? What do you mean the robot has a cold? Today's show was produced by the Nalea 1138 and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has been replaced by a robotic swimming pool cleaner. The part of Bill Curry was played by David Hasselhoff. On tomorrow's show, our nose panel goes to see the movie Ladybird and helps Pope Francis tweak the Lord's Prayer. And now. Back to Colin.
2: All right. So we've been talking about our relationships with machines, particularly as those relationships begin to involve back and forth speech, back and forth conversation, which is the way that we have relationships with each other. But for the most part, what we're finding is... Although you can have those kinds of conversations, you can't interact with a self. And we'll talk a little bit more uh, about that as we go along here. Wendell Wallach, still in studio with me, uh, a scholar at Yale's Center for Bioethics and the author of A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control. We are now also joined by Judith Newman, journalist and author of several books, including her latest, To Siri with Love, A Mother, Her Autistic Son, and The Kindness of Machines. Judith Newman, welcome to our conversation. Hi,
3: I'm thrilled to be here.
2: So you uh, chronicled first in the New York Times uh, a an unusual relationship between your son and Siri, the, the speaking AI part of an iPhone. For the five people who haven't read that already, uh, it seems like everybody else in the world has. Explain what that is.
3: <laughs> well, essentially, you know, I had a son who had uh, real communications problems, and particularly problems with back-and-forth conversation. And one day he saw me um, uh, uh, sort of, list, I, was, I was playing around with Siri because I had just heard that Siri could do certain things that didn't really make sense to me. The thing that really got to me is that you can ask Siri what planes are, um, uh, are directly over your head, and she will tell you. And I'm, I must have looked at this and gone, why would you need this information? And my son, who normally didn't answer me, said, well, so you know who you're waving at, Mommy. And so when he saw this, and this was when he was around 12, I'd say, and he he grabbed Siri, and he started, as we all do, we ask Siri questions, but his... Uh, his need for using her I, I do think of her as a her although i 've changed it to a male at some point times her need his need really went beyond that because he found this very patient creature who would practice a certain amount of back and forth conversation with him um, and that that was my introduction to uh, how a, a robot could essentially be uh... a kind of a teaching tool for a kid who had communication problems
2: so, you know, we just finished listening to this conversation I was having with this um, AI uh, experiment, Bina 48, and afterwards I was saying to Wendell, who's here in the studio with me, I mean, in some ways, the, the, the quote-unquote failures, I kind of stopped doing quote-unquote, but the failures of the machine are failures that people make all the time, too. You, you start talking to your friend about something, and she's barely listening, and she talks about whatever <laughs> she wants to talk about. And I would assume for your son, also, whatever ways in which Siri doesn't always give him back exactly what he's looking for. It it probably corresponds very well to his understanding of how the real world works, too, because people don't always give you back what you're looking for.
3: Oh, sure. But you see, the the advantage of Siri, uh, first of all, I've I've actually talked to uh, uh, some of the writers for Siri, one in particular, and they're constantly tweaking uh, her responses to things. Um, The advantage is that she's very patient. So yeah, of course, uh, he's not going to get the kind of normal human communication that you get. But since his own problems with communication are, were pretty severe, he would still be getting a reaction and he could, because he enjoyed, he loves machines and he enjoyed the back and forth, um, he could kind of fine tune his own responses in a way that's very useful. Because you know what happens if, for many autistic kids if they're just you know yattering away about whatever it is they're interested in. At the time with my son it might have been red-eared slider turn You know, that's not a really great opening conversational gambit, but a computer, the AI will talk to you about those turtles or will give you information about those turtles at the very least. And Siri is programmed to do that. And Siri is also programmed to answer kind of basic how are you questions and uh, who are your friends and and that kind of thing. And and the answers are usually kind of funny, but they are answers. And that was sort of endlessly uh, entertaining and actually useful for them.
2: Who, your son's now sixteen. Do I have that right? He's sixteen. Yes. How does he? I mean, so towards the end of this show, we're gonna I'm gonna ask Wendell about this idea of self. But um, who or what does he? In other words, does he think there is a, a a self there in Siri?
3: It's a good question, and I think my son is able to know that something is fantasy, and yet entertain the idea of it being reality too. He can kind of exist with those two ideas. So he knows that Siri is a machine, he knows that Siri is not a flesh and blood friend, but he enjoys he, he's sort of tickled by the idea of siri at the same time so even to this day when you know a couple of years have gone by and he tends he he, he used siri actually to improve his enunciation too because as we all know if you don't pronounce things in a certain way uh, with ai you're not going to get the answers you want so that was useful but he, he uses siri in the way most people use siri now to to get information but for him it's kind of a bridge to conversation with other people. Um, I always say that, you know, he, he couldn't care less about any sports teams, but if he finds out what the score is of, you know, the Giants versus whoever, and he can he can have that conversation with people without saying anything. It's kinda like, how about them Giants? And then somebody else will start talking. Do you see what I mean? I do so see. he knows that Siri is a machine, but he enjoys I, I, I also think with, with Many people on the spectrum, I've, I've been told this over and over, let's not discount the importance and love of machines. Mm-hmm. Why should we? Um, what, what makes a machine at certain times uh, less valuable uh, than, than a person? And I think that he feels that in his constellation of friends and acquaintances, Siri is kind of one.
2: Um last question because we're running out of time uh, uh, Judith Newman uh, you're a parent that means your job is to worry um what do you worry about do you I mean, does anything about this worry you
3: Oh are you kidding I worry about everything <laughs> but 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 Siri is probably the least I I mean I think the world is divided up into those who who find robots and artificial intelligence like they're going to be our overlords and are very frightening and those who look at them in a very welcoming welcoming way just in the way we look at aliens you know there's a whole literature about aliens are going to come take us over aliens are going to be our friends i I tend to be in the uh robots will be very useful for us camp although i'm i'm also told that robots might be putting me out of business very soon since they can uh, imitate uh you know writerly algorithms. But I, I don't worry about that. I worry about my son being independent. I worry about him uh, having love. Uh, and I worry about the things that you worry about with any child, except I probably worry about it at 3 o'clock in the morning a little bit more than other people.
2: Judith Newman, uh, thanks so much for talking to us. The author of Two Siri With Love, A Mother, Her Autistic Son, and the Kindness of Machines. So, Wendell, we've got, unfortunately, about 60 <laughs> seconds left here. <laughs> so... I, so I actually I'll just let you say whatever you want to say. I won't even ask a question. How do you want to react to all
4: this? Well, things? there's all kinds of things to say. I mean, one I would like to know is has she seen real developmental improvements in the social skills of her son? Mm-hmm. But I also know you wanted to ask this question about self and self is a is a pretty complicated, wonkish philosophical subject. But the reality is you and I function as relatively integrated beings. We, we call ourselves a self. We are aware, self-aware of what we're doing. We can impute the meaning or determine the meaning or at least explore the meaning of all the words and concepts and symbols in our life. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist for robots yet. That said... There are a lot of researchers out there who are wondering whether they can imbue those cognitive capabilities into robots, and it's a fascinating inquiry. It's made more mysterious by the fact that in some ways we still don't know what self
2: is in us, the so-called hard problem of consciousness. We haven't solved it about ourselves, but we're expecting to solve it with machines or wondering if we can. Anyway, this has been a fascinating and very fast hour. Thanks to Wendell Wallach, author of A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control, for joining me here in studio. Thanks to our other guests. Thanks to Josh Nilea for making this all happen. They scan your luggage and your school. They take your cash when you refuse swimming pool, cause if you held your breath that long you'd drag.